Lord, we love you. We thank you for uh, the, the, the scriptures, God. We love your word. We love your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light unto our path. God, we are alive when your word is living and moving in us. And it's, it is our bread. It is our bread. It's our sustenance. So what I'm asking, would you speak to us from your word tonight? Would you give us revelation? Let the spirit of wisdom and revelation come upon us tonight, Lord. I pray you'd move in us. You'd speak to us. You'd clarify to us, God. I pray lights would come on. Light would come on in our soul, in our spirit, and deception would leave. I thank you for giving us clarity, God. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Now, Lord, come and speak with truth tonight. In the name of Jesus, good. Everybody said amen. Um, we're going to go ahead and do a session tonight on the rapture. And uh, <clears throat> I am convinced that this is one of the most important things that uh, the church in the West needs to get uh, the Bible on right now. I think that there is much said about this subject, uh, but there's sort of a, a standard byline uh, approach that many take, and it doesn't, that, that approach doesn't have a, uh, many times, a thorough investigation of the Scriptures. I want to say this, um, there are many good people that teach a rapture doctrine that puts the rapture in a pre-tribulation um, setting or format, and, and we, we don't, you know, think anybody's a heretic if they do, do pre-trib rapture. We, don't, we love many of those uh, brothers and sisters, uh, but I will say this, while uh, your, your um, eschatology... So long as you believe that Jesus is coming back, your eschatology has nothing to do with whether or not you are orthodox. In other words, whether or not your Christianity is valid. So long as you believe Jesus is coming back, every different eschatological position believes Jesus is coming back. So that's the, as, that's the one that determines orthodoxy. But uh, I will say this. Um, I believe that the pre-trib rapture is a destructive deception that has left us very unprepared in the West. And because of that, uh, the church in the West has a, a um, viewpoint, a vantage point of God that does not uh, accord with uh, who he is in the scriptures. Uh, and we generally believe, because we think God is the God that does a pre-tribulation rapture, that he gets us out of here before anything bad is going to happen, that when something bad does happen, so to speak, we think, well, God's not in that. Yet the Bible is really clear that the Lord is the one that initiates every end time event. Jesus himself is the one that opens all the seals on the scroll that's in the Father's hand. And the Lord is the one that's in charge of the end time events. He is the one that initiates them in the earth. And he is the God that uses judgment to purify his people. I'll say that again. He is the God that uses judgment, judgment events, to bring purity to his people. He uses pressings. He authors challenges. It's, it's the, he, he blows on the fire, and he causes the heat to rise so that the dross can be burned out of us. He uses a mechanism of purification 
that is many times not so uh, comfortable to our flesh or our temporal pleasures. But I want to just mention to you that your temporal comfort is not God's highest concern. It's just not, beloved. He, he really doesn't mind, you know, putting a little pressure on us in order to cause us to grope for him and to run to him. He doesn't mind orchestrating circumstances to allow challenges to come so that it produces perseverance and pure, ultimately purity in our lives. I've got, okay, Romans 5. I've got to show you this verse. Romans 5. We'll read this verse, make a comment or two, and then we'll move through this outline. I've, I have 15 pages of notes on this topic that I've edited down to seven and a half just so that we could try to get it done in about 45 minutes, 50 minutes tonight. And uh, I, I'm giving you as much as I can tonight so you can go perhaps and study it. That's why I'm giving you the outlines on this subject. I want you all to go in and study it yourself Study the scriptures. See if what I'm saying is real. If it's not, email me a nasty gram. We can go back and forth. I'll help you find out that I am telling you the truth. Anyway. No, we can, go, we can talk about it. All right, Romans 5. I'm not going to say that didn't come out the way I wanted it to because it really did. Anyway, Romans 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Lord authors tribulation. That's the exact same word that the, that the pre-tribulation rapture guys will tell you that God keeps you from. Yet the, the rest of the doctrine of the New Testament tells us that God uses tribulation. John said, I am your fellow companion in the tribulation in Revelations 1. And God uses tribulation to create perseverance in you. And that having its pers- perfect work that you have hope. And hope is expectation. And that draws you into the love of God. So the point is this. God uses tri- uh, trials and tribulations, challenges and pressings to bring you into the knowledge of the love of God. It's exactly what Romans 5 is saying. He uses pressings because he's wanting you to find out how much he loves you and he wants you to come into an experience of abandonment and love. So he'll even use things that are not comfortable, tribulations. And, and the trick is that we would glory in tribulations. That we would rejoice, we'd count it all joy when we suffer tribulations and persecutions and trials in this life. 
knowing that it's producing perseverance, a long-haul mentality, a, 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 a stick-to-itiveness in our hearts that we wouldn't quit and that we would find ourselves alive and abandoned in love with God. God is the God that uses those things as a mechanism to bring us into abandonment and love. That's what Romans 5 is telling us. And so our lens, thinking about uh, the God who doesn't use judgment, it's it just got to be redirected. It's got to be redone. It's got to be, our paradigm has to change on that. And so uh, I want to go ahead and begin to move then through this outline. And uh, I'm just asking the Lord to, to allow the scriptures just to speak to us. I don't have to try to even do a lot of commentating on this. I throw the scriptures out. I'll, I'll show you how they fit. And it's just pretty evident when you look at the verses um, where the rapture falls. And so we'll just work through it. All right, under Roman numeral one, the, uh, the way that this doctrine is established in Scripture, and you even get the, uh, the word rapture, because the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible. It comes from a, a Latin term, raptus, however you want to say that, raptus, raptus. Somebody speaks Latin, R-A-E-P-E-T-I-U-S, raptus. That is a term that's used in the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin uh, version of the Bible. And it's, it's the word that is uh, the Latin term uh, for the Greek word harpazo, caught up. And so that's what your notes say there in 1 and 2 under A, that harpazo is the Greek term that is translated as caught up. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, where we get this, this idea of the catching up, that's where we get the idea of the rapture. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's just move through this. It says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up that's the word, harpazo. That's, that's where the Latin term, reptius, comes from. And that's where we get the term rapture. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So Paul makes a few comments there. He says this, The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air with them. Now, I want to encourage you, not to get your eschatology from a movie. <clears throat> it would be best for you to get your eschatology from the Bible. It's just a thought, but I think it's a good one. If you allow the verses to give you the identity of what's going to happen, it will paint a completely different picture than what you saw in the movie. This identifies that there are going to be uh, people who are dead in Christ. They were believers who have died, and they are going to begin to leave the earth, and then we who are alive are also going to leave the earth. We are going to be caught up together. The alive and the dead in Christ are, are being caught up together in the air, and we're going to all be in the air and meet the Lord. That is cool. I mean, how does that work exactly? Like the movie thing is, you know, the lady's boiling the pot of water and da-da, you hear a trumpet blast and the next thing you know, like the, the pot's boiling over and there's her clothes on the ground and she's disappeared. No, that's not what it says. 
says we're going to go up in the air, caught up in the air. It's powerful. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. The Lord will be in the air. The dead in Christ will be in the air. And the alive in Christ will be in the air. And that's where we're going to meet him. How cool is that? Way cool. And it's going to be something people can see. It's not going to be invisible. In other words, the guy that's on the planet, he's going to watch the guy go up in the air. And he's going to look up and see it. Huh. That's different than the movie, isn't it? So both groups meet the Lord in the air. And this event happens with the shout of an archangel and the trumpet of God. I just want to put it in your mind, but how loud does this archangel have to shout for every person who's dead in Christ and alive in Christ to hear it? Because it's not like, you know, you just get to hear it in Atlanta. Everybody's going to get to hear it. So you have this archangel who shouts, the globe hears it, and then you got somebody, let's not even worry about who's blowing the trumpet. Somebody's blowing a trumpet. It's the trumpet of God, and it's so loud the whole planet can possibly hear it. How cool is that? Thank you. Way better than the movie. What kind of a supernatural trumpet and supernatural shout is that? Stunning. And so this is, I mean, there is intense drama going on. So then Paul, same writer, 1 Corinthians 15, let's look at this. And I, I'm just, like I said, I just want to present this to you. I'm not trying to be argumentative. I know, per, I know for sure there's people in here that have a pre-trib rapture uh, viewpoint because 80% of us in America believe in a pre-trib rapture. 80% of Americans believe it. I would say that percentage would be much lower in China because they've gone through many, many, many tribulation-style events. <clears throat> First Corinthians 15. Paul speaking again. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means we're not going to all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So Paul gives us clarity that this trumpet that's going to get blown will be the last trumpet. So for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Beloved, in that moment... Paul describes it. He says, our corruptible will put on incorruption. We're going to get a body that is supernatural in makeup. We see Jesus. It's called the glorified body. We see Jesus with the glorified body, and he walks through walls. And he, and he apparently can appear and travel at the speed of thought. The other cool little feature about it is he eats when he's in the glorified body. I know, I, I like that. Apparently, we're not going to, you know, we'll have prayer meetings, but we don't have to fast. Thank you, Lord. Jesus even describes at the Last Supper, he goes, listen, I'm not going to drink of this wine 
drink of the vine until I drink it with you new in the kingdom. He is fasting right now the wine, heavenly wine. He's fasting heavenly wine until we get to be there with him and eat at his table and drink it in the kingdom. If you want to think of it this way, he's on a bridegroom fast just as much as we are. And in that day, beloved, our corruptible, it's going to put on incorruption. Our mortal will put on immortality. What will that be like? All the barriers of the flesh leave. You're changed. The capacities of your soul to drink God. The veil of the flesh is gone. You have a body, but it's immortal. You have a body, but it's incorruptible. It's a flesh and bone body, but it's supernatural. This body enables you to relate to the natural and the spiritual all together. It's the same kind of body the Lord Jesus has. He's at the right hand of the Father, fully interfacing with the throne of God. And there's a day coming that he'll be in that same body, and he will come to the earth, and he'll rule on the planet, and he'll fully interface with those on the earth. And we'll have a body exactly like his, in the same form as his. It'll be a supernatural body. And that happens to us when he comes, when the trumpet sounds, when the archangel's voice is heard, I believe, all over the globe, and we are changed. It's going to be a good day. We're going to meet him in the air. Oh, it's a good day. It's a good day. So look at what Jesus said about it in Matthew 24. It says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. All the tribes of the earth are going to see Jesus coming everybody on the planet will see God in the flesh coming and when he comes he's going to come with great power and great glory the Bible tells us that he's going to come in flaming fire the Bible tells us he's going to come with myriads of angels the sky is going to be lit up with fire and glory and angels. And the tribes of the earth are going to see this event. Don't let the word tribes make you stumble. All the people groups, all the cities, all the groups of different you know, uh, nationalities. Everybody's going to see this. It's far different than the movie version where the gal, gal just disappears. Jesus is going to come and it's going to be a shock. And when they see him in the air, they're going to begin to mourn. It says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The angels are going to go through the sky and gather believers that have gone up in the air and they're going to gather them from the four winds and bring us to Jesus in the air. 
Now, how cool will that be on the day you go shooting up, your body is changed, your mortal puts on immortality, your corruptible puts on uh, incorruptible, you're in the air, and an angelic escort picks you up. There's flaming fire all over the sky. He picks you up. I don't know how that works. You jump on his back. I'm not sure. And he flies you over to meet Jesus in the air. And you're seeing your grandmother who just got up. You're seeing your dad, Diana. He's up there in the air. All the dead in Christ are up in the air. You're, you're, You're doing a reunion And they're flying by you on angels. And there's, I mean, can you imagine what what is that scene going to look like to the guy that's on the planet? There, okay, because the Bible tells us that it's going to be dark, but the sky is going to be lit up with flaming fire, angels everywhere, myriads of angels, all the hosts of heaven. All the believers are going to go up. All those that are dead in Christ, their, their bodies are going to go up. They're going to go up and meet the Lord in the air. And that from the vantage point of the ground, they're going to look up and they're going to see glory like no one has ever pictured. The sky will be an array of beauty and light and fire. Supernatural beings. And all the tribes of the earth will see the sign of the Son of Man in the air. I think the sign of the Son of Man is the the entire procession. It's his whole crowd. All those on his team, if you will. They're going to look at him and go, oh my. So Jesus, he gives us the picture of how the angels actually gather the people. And then how every tribe on the earth perceives And they don't just think, wow, that's a fireworks display up there. They understand it's Jesus, the sign of the Son of Man. So it's interesting for them to actually see Jesus. I believe it has to do with some sort of an aerial procession that the Lord is going to make. Stands to reason if angels can gather people from one end of heaven to the other... And if all the people on the earth have to see Jesus in the air, I think the Lord's going to actually make a lap. For real. How do you get all the tribes on the earth to see him? Because the guy in Australia ain't going to see him if he's over America. They recognize that it's Jesus. So when the Lord comes, he comes in flaming fire, and I believe that, that for every eye to see him, he's actually got to travel the globe in an aerial lap with all the glory of his Father. The Bible says he's coming in the glory of his Father. Think about that one for a moment. He's coming in the glory of his Father. The dead in Christ will rise. Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. We'll all be changed. And I believe this procession as we're gathered to the Lord makes an aerial lap around the globe so that every eye can see him. Beloved, that will be fulfilled. That's not just a little phrase you throw in there. Every eye is going to see him. 
And when they see him, they will mourn in that moment. It's a powerful reality. Look at Revelation 1 right there in the middle of page 2. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even though even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. He's coming. And when he comes, beloved, he's not coming. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know what our pictures of a, are of a, as when he comes. He's coming as a, a man in a glorified body. That's what he's coming. I believe he's going to look like what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. I believe his face is going to be shining like the sun. His eyes are going to be burning with fire. I believe he's, he's going to have a robe on. He's going to have a band around that robe. I believe his, his skin and his feet is going to be glowing like bomb, bronze burning in a furnace. He's going to come in power. And when he comes in the glory of his Father, what will that look like, beloved? I believe it's going to look like Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel 1. Let's just flip over there. I didn't put it in the notes for you. Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel sees the vision of the Son of Man. Sees Jesus pre-incarnate. Look at verse 4. I, I like it. He's, he's over there by the river Chebar. I doubt that's how the Babylonians said it. <laughs> There's Ezekiel the priest. He's over by the river Chebar. <laughs> the hand of the Lord was upon him. Verse 3. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. A great cloud. We're not talking about a little, you know, Jesus floating in on a little cotton swab. We're talking about a fiery whirlwind that goes from the earth to the heavens and it's moving and it's got glory and light and it's, it's got life and power and fire and it's a, a swirling, moving, powerful you know, expression of the glory of God. When he comes on a cloud, he's not floating in on a nice little you know, cotton swab. He's coming in on this cloud of glory. And that cloud of glory, I believe that when he flies in and he makes that aerial procession around the globe, every person will see this cloud of glory. The dead in Christ will be joined and, will, and the alive in Christ will go up, will be changed, will be joined into that cloud of glory as the angels bring us there. And that whole thing's going to go all over the earth. And you know where it's going to rest? Right over Jerusalem. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. A careful examination of Ezekiel 1, and you'll see that whole cloud of glory is a throne. Who knows what the throne of God will look like in the age to come? I guarantee you it's not going to be a big chair. I guarantee you it's going to be more than that. And that procession, and that event, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet blast, and the fiery procession, the glory of God, the hosts of heaven, the dead in Christ, the alive in Christ, Jesus on the glory of his Father, that's what the rapture event's going to look like. 
It's not going to be just something where the little gal's cooking and she disappears and her clothes fall to the floor. This will be something that everybody on the planet sees. And when they see it and they realize they're not a part of it, they will mourn in that moment. They will be gripped to the heart and pierced through with the reality that they have missed and found themselves unprepared in the day of his coming. It's a shocking thing. It's a powerful thing. All right, let's look at Roman numeral two. We'll pick up on page three here. How we doing? We okay? First Thessalonians four, verses 15 and 17. Let's look back at these verses. Let's understand when he's talking about the catching up, what's it in context to? When does the catching up take place? This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. I want to propose this to you. I have to propose it to you. The Bible just did. The coming of the Lord happens at the same time as the catching up. Someone would like to try to separate those events for you. They would like to try to tell you that there is a catching up and a coming. Yet Paul lays them right there with one another. Jesus laid them right there with one another. The Greek word for coming is a word parousia. That word means this, a coming and remaining. A coming and staying. So the catching up and Jesus coming and remaining, they happen together. They happen at the same time. It's not talking about when Jesus says he's going to come and catch us up. It's not talking about a momentary appearing. It's talking about a coming and taking residence. And he places the time of the coming of the Lord. We know it as the second coming. The time of the coming of the Lord and the time of the catching up are right together. It's at the same time, beloved. I'll just read it again. This we say by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's talking about one event. Those are not two separate events. They're one event. It's interesting to note that Paul the Apostle seemed to think he would be on the earth at the time of the second coming. If you tried to put a rapture event prior to that, Paul was saying to us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that he was going to miss that and be on the planet at the coming. Of course, there wasn't a previous rapture event. That's the whole point. Paul wasn't going to miss the rapture event. He was going to go up. He was going to be those who were alive and remain until the coming, and then he was going to go up in the rapture. That's what he was telling us. The coming of the Lord and the rapture, one reality. They happen at the same time. Now look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming, and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the man of sin is revealed, 
who is the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians 2 is such an important verse for us. We have got to get our minds around this chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2. It is essential to understand the uh, flow of end time events and how things happen as it relates to the coming of the Lord in the rapture. And so here's the interesting thing. In verses 1 through 3, Paul mentions the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, and the rapture, and he speaks of these events interchangeably. He uses them interchangeably. There are three unique things that are happening, but they happen at the same time, simultaneous to one another. And Paul makes no pro- he has no problem with it laying it out like that. He explains it and puts these things right there together. The coming of the Lord, our gathering together to him, the day of the Lord. I don't want you to be, he's basically saying, I don't want you to be worried about what I just wrote to you. He goes, I don't want you to be soon shaken or worried, even if it's by a spirit that's lying to you, or even a letter that I sent you. That's what he's talking about. He's referencing his first Thessalonians letter. Can you see that? Can you see that? You got to see that. He says it right there. Not to, verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. He's referencing what he was talking to them about in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's, what, that's part of why he's even writing 2 Thessalonians 2. He's trying to explain to them what he wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 4. He uses the exact same language. It's the same author. He's writing to the same group. It would be like if I wrote you a letter and I said, okay, you know that event we're going to have? It's going to be on Saturday, and um, I need you to bring you know, a, 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 a pot of beans and uh, you know, bring some um, hamburgers, and uh, I'll bring the two liters. And then I write you another letter. Uh, email a couple days later and I go okay you know the event that we're having on Saturday the beans burgers right okay I need you also bring some napkins I I would be simply just referencing with the same language I'm writing the same person you would know exactly what I was talking about that's exactly what Paul's doing and he he says the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him he's talking about the same thing he was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 so it's important for us to see that Paul is referencing something that he's already laid out for them now look at D there I mentioned, I lay it out for you right there. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, it's important to understand several of these features. Number one, it's the same author. It's the Apostle Paul. Number two, um, he has the same audience um, as 1 Thessalonians 4. Actually, I should have written in that. It's a mistype. should be the Thessalonian church, not Corinthian. Thessalonian church. Scratch Corinthian, right? Thessalonian. Three. He uses the same language as 1 Thessalonians in both passages. He uses the word coming, which is the Greek word parousia. Four, he mentions his previous letter. Five, the point I'm trying to make is he's talking about the same event. 2 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about the same event as he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Same guy talking to the same audience using the same language. He's talking about the same event. So now that we got that clear, 
Let's take a look at then the timing indicators as it relates to this event called the rapture. The Bible is clear because it gives us multiple timing indicators. It gives us clear timing indicators that land for us when the rapture event takes place. And if we look at the biblical timing indicators, it's just real clear. You just read it and then you see where it is. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians, he really lands a couple of these timing indicators. Okay, I've already established B right there, that it's, coming, it's at the coming of the Lord event. Now look at C. The rapture happens after the great apostasy and the revealing of Antichrist. Let's look back at, on page 5 at 2 Thessalonians 2 one more time. Let's see it. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So Paul identifies that the revealing of this son of perdition is when a man comes and sits in the temple and calls himself God. That's called the abomination of desolation. Jesus references it in Matthew 24 verse 15. Daniel talks about it in Daniel 9, 27, and Daniel 11, and Daniel uh, 12. It's the abomination of desolation. Antichrist is going to come. He's going to storm Jerusalem, and he's going to set himself in the temple of God. He's going to uh, cause the sacrifice, uh, sacrifices and, and religious services to cease in the temple, and he's going to tell the people, I am God. And Paul is clear with this, and he says that the rapture does not happen before that, that the abomination of desolation has to happen first, and then the rapture will happen. Well, we know for sure that the abomination of desolation, which Paul describes as this man sitting in the temple and calling himself God, that happened somewhere near the midpoint of the last seven years. Somewhere near the midpoint. So the rapture cannot happen prior to the abomination of desolation. Paul says that has to happen first, and then the rapture happens after that. So anytime within that last seven years, if you ever hear anybody say that the rapture happens prior to that last seven years, or anytime in the first three and a half, you know that can't be right based on 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul clearly lands it that the gathering together to him with the coming of the Lord event, that happens after the man of sin is revealed. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. The rapture happens after the great tribulation begins, which the great tribulation begins at that abomination of desolation event. Matthew twenty four twenty one. Jesus is giving us the language for the great tribulation. It says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
then the sign of the Son of Man will appear after the tribulation of those days. Huh. So it can't happen before the great tribulation. It happens after the tribulation of those days. He makes it clear. So somewhere in the final three and a half years of this age is when that thing is going to go down. The rapture event. All right, E. The rapture happens at least after the sixth seal. In the book of Revelations, you have 21 judgment events. You have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Each of them are seven uh, events. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The sixth seal is a timing indicator for us. And let me show you the verse. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 20. He's quoting Joel 2. And he says this, The sun shall be darkened, shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And we already know that the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, and the rapture all happen simultaneously. So the moon has to turn to blood before that happens. Before the day of the Lord, there's going to be a sign. The moon will be blood red. When does that happen according to the book of Revelation? The sixth seal. Revelation 6, there it is, top of page 6. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. So since we know the day of the Lord and the rapture event are simultaneous, and we know that the day of the Lord cannot come until we see the sign of the moon turn blood red, according to Acts 2 and Joel 2, we know that the day of the Lord and the rapture event must happen after the sixth seal. Well, the first seal is right in the middle of those last seven years. The sixth seal is sometime in the, you know, towards the, how would you say that, in the middle of the last three and a half years. So you can't place the rapture prior to the sixth seal. Now we're getting really towards the end, aren't we? F, the rapture happens at the seventh trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52. This is not rocket science. You just read it. All you have to do is read it. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Matthew 24, 31, Jesus said he'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Many would argue that Paul's last trumpet is different than the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. And they would say, well, because Paul didn't know about the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. But I would tell you this, that the same spirit that gave Paul the utterance to write 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, was the same spirit that gave John the insight to write about all the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, including the seventh trumpet. So when Paul was speaking by the Holy Spirit and saying that at the last trumpet is when we will be raised, that same Holy Spirit knew that he was going to give a seventh trumpet in the book of Revelations, 
It's very clear. He just connected. That's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, the book of Revelation even identifies for us what happens at the seventh trumpet event. It explains that the mystery of God comes to an end at that time. So let's look at Revelation 10 right there. He swore by him who lives forever and ever. It says this strong angel in Revelation 10. He's arrayed with glory. He's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And he's proclaiming with a loud voice. And that angel, he swore by him who lives forever and ever. And he create, who created the heavens and all that is in them. The earth and all that is in it. And the sea and all that is in it. And said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, we know clearly this mystery, whatever it is, is going to be finished in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. What do you think the mystery is? Let's look at uh, Romans 11 right there. It says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, before you think I'm just yanking one scripture out of context, I have it right there for you in four, with the list of New Testament scriptures that make the mystery of God, the Gentiles are fellow partakers of the gospel. The mystery of God is this, that the Gentiles are fellow partakers of the gospel. And there's your scripture list to go look back and check it. Check my math and see if that's what those verses say. It's what they say. So for that strong angel to declare that the mystery of God will be finished in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, he's saying this, that the fullness of the Gentiles who are going to get saved in this age will come in in the days just prior to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. What does that mean, beloved? That means this, that all those who are going to get born again get born again prior to the seventh trumpet. You know what sounds like a good idea to do at the seventh trumpet? rapture all those people up in the air and that's what it's about the seventh trumpet the last trumpet calls together all those who are alive in christ and all those who are dead in christ and we don't see anybody get born again during the bowls in fact when the bowls are pounding the planet men are blaspheming god but just prior to the seventh trumpet you have an earthquake and you have several thousand that get saved right there in the city of jerusalem it's the last reference we have to people getting born again in this age At the seventh trumpet, at the last trumpet, the mystery of God is complete. The entire Gentile harvest is in. At the last trumpet, we shall be changed. We shall be caught up with the Lord. And that's when the rapture takes place. It's it's biblically clear. Now, it must happen before the first bowl. And the reason why is God did not appoint us to wrath, did he? You know, you hear that verse used a lot, and people say, well, see, we're not going to go through anything bad because God did not appoint us to wrath. But the Bible's pretty clear when it talks about the bold judgments that the bold judgments are the fulfillment or the completion or the finality of the wrath of God. In them is where the wrath of God is stored up. And the bold judgments are the wrath of God on the earth. They are fully non-redemptive to those they are pointed at. They are retribution. They are wrath. 
believers in this age are not appointed to that, and therefore it has to happen, the rapture has to happen prior to the first bowl. And so finally, we get that beautiful verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. We actually get it in context. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 15, 1, it says, Then I saw an, uh, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. It's finalized. It's completed. Those bowls are where the wrath of God is getting stored up. Romans 1 and 2 explains to us that right now, sinful men are storing up for themselves wrath for the day of retribution. And those bowls of wrath are being stored up right now. They're going to be poured on the earth in that day. And beloved, you and I, we're not appointed to to experience that under the hand of the Lord. The Lord will bring tribulations, trials, and judgment to bring pressing to us, to bring us to perseverance and voluntary love and abandonment and love. But he is not going to pour his wrath upon his church. He's bringing us to purity and spotlessness before him. Okay, H, coming down to the end. I did it, beloved. I got through seven and a half pages. I know I went a little fast for some of it. If you haven't heard these things, I understand that it could be new to your ear, and you go, what, what was that? I encourage you, take it back. Look at the scriptures. Consider them. Let the scriptures re, uh, speak to you. Let them speak over you. Allow the Bible to, to, to uh, instruct your heart. All right, H, here's a summary of the rapture. Here's what we do. The events of the rapture and the rewarding of the saints unfold in this manner. The seventh trumpet will sound. Immediately, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel. The saints who have died will be resurrected. and The saints who are alive will be changed. And we will all be caught up together in the air. Jesus I'm looking forward to that day, Lord. Those who have been raptured from the earth will be gathered together from the ends of the, uh, of the heavens by the angels of God. We go up in the air and the angels gather us together and Jesus will appear in flaming fire. The glory of his Father. He'll appear in a, in a great cloud of glory. I believe that's when he makes the aerial procession as the angels are gathering us to him and there's a trail of fire all across the globe. Every person on the earth will see him, all those who are left, and they will mourn. Five, the raptured saints will meet the Lord in the air. All the resurrected saints as well as the saints from all the ages convene with Jesus and will receive rewards. And Jesus will then descend to the earth with his armies. He will descend to the earth with his armies, angelic armies, and and a host of saints from all the ages. And he will begin his earthly procession across the nations. And he will will culminate all the great day of the Lord events. In the coming couple weeks, I don't know if we're going to take a week or two on it, but I want to explain what that earthly procession and what the day of the Lord is about, what the events of the day of the Lord hold in the earthly procession and Jesus and his military campaign on the planet. Okay, good, let's stand.
I believe that this is one of the most important messages for the church right now. Because it, if we think somehow we can live sort of just, you know, agreeing to Christianity but sloppy in life and somehow, you know, God's going to just sort of bail us out before anything gets challenging, I believe we will be completely unprepared for the trials that are ahead of us that the book of Revelation makes really clear. Last week, we talked about the great tribulation. We talked about, in depth, the 21 judgment events. And I believe the church is here through the seals and the trumpets. I believe the bowls take place in a very short period of time. Great intensity and wrath of God bringing destruction upon the planet. But we, who are believers, we've got to get, and this is where I'm gripped with right now, we've got to get the spiritual fantasy removed from our minds and removed from our eyes as it relates to the end of the age. Many only have a picture of quote-unquote positive things and a, a revival eschatology that doesn't have, and then a, a pre-tribulation rapture that leaves us completely unprepared for any kind of challenges. And I, I tell you, in, in, in doing this outline for us, I've done my very best not to try to spin a thing, not to add my own little twist on it. I mean, when it's my opinion, I shared that. I think, I think there's an aerial procession. You know, I, I don't know how every other eye is going to see him in another version, but that's my vision, that he's going to go around the earth. But I've been very, very... Uh, you know, just allowing the scripture to say what it says and deriving from that, you know, our mentality of the end of the age. Our hearts, beloved, have got to disconnect from, from movie versions of end times. We've got to get a biblical paradigm for what the end of the age holds. So I want to ask the Lord to come and begin to bring revelation to us.